Once again, this evening, we look into the book of Genesis at chapter 29, Genesis chapter 29, and I will read the first 30 verses of chapter 29 of Genesis, Genesis chapter 29. Let's pay heed as God speaks to us through his word tonight. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it's high, still high day. It is, not, is it not time uh, for livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep, and go pasture them? But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter <coughs> Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then did you have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed the, her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, 
and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, your word comes to us and it strikes us as sometimes difficult to understand. And yet we have confidence, O oh Lord, that you who have given your word are the one who guides us in understanding that word. And so we plead with you to open your word to us, open our hearts to receive it, and enable us, our Father in heaven, to profit from what it is that you have spoken to us. We make this plea to you in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, looked at the way Jacob and uh, Rebekah uh, deceived uh, <clears throat> uh, Isaac. Uh, you all remember the deception enabled Jacob uh, to get the blessing that uh, Isaac intended to pronounce upon uh, Esau. Uh, you'll also recall that there was some reason why Jacob should have had that blessing. Uh, the oracle that his mother got said that the uh, uh, elder would serve the younger, and we also know that Esau sold the birthright, and with the birthright also came the blessing. Uh, as is often the case in God's outworking of his providence, he, he brings about judgments through the very things that are practiced by sinners. And in this incident that we're looking at today, we see Jacob. Uh, Jacob, I think I could rightly describe as the consummate deceiver, is deceived. Uh, and it both brings a difficulty for him and for others as well. I think in this story, there's a bit of, as you sow, so shall you reap. And as we read it, I think that bounces out to us as we, we look at this. In both cases of deception, the consequences are tragic. Uh, Jacob's brother Esau says, I'm going to kill you. He's going to murder him. And Jacob has to escape. When we look at the second story of where Jacob is deceived, we also see a family that's uh, rife with dissension and all kinds of evil. We're going to run across that as we continue to walk through Jacob's life. And even when we get done with Jacob, uh, someday we may look at the way in which it comes out in the life of Joseph and others. But th that's what happens. There's discord and evil. And one can't read these stories without wondering if Moses, the one that God used to record all of these stories, if, uh, if he didn't mean for us to learn that evil begets evil. Uh, as you sow, so shall you reap. Um, and so let's look at this narrative, let's look at this incident, and let's do so, first of all, looking at the way in which the text outlines and sets forth an approach, and then let's look at the agreement that is made and how it comes about, and then let's try to take a little bit of time uh, to look at the aftermath. And so let's first of all look at the, the approach. Now, Jacob is making his journey, and the reasons for him making his journey are twofold. One is he's running for his life. Uh, Esau said, I'm going to murder you, and his mother said, get out of town, and uh, Jacob has done that. Uh, the other reason he is there is because both his mother and his father uh, have told him that they do not want him to marry a Canaanite woman. Now, last Sunday evening, Nate raised the question, is God prejudiced? Uh, you know, he doesn't like some people. And uh, is that what's going on here? Why is it that he's saying, don't marry a Canaanite? 
Do you think that the scriptures give us some reason? God opposes the Canaanites, uh, very much so. If you go back into chapter 15 of Genesis, you will see there the way in which God tells Abraham that he's going to judge the Canaanites. The Amorites, he's going to, that's a part of the Canaanites, and he's going, to, he's going to judge them. And as a matter of fact, the way in which he's going to judge them is through the Israelites. God says, I will tolerate their evil for a while, but it will eventually get filled up, and then I will use the Israelites to, uh, to destroy them, actually. And uh, we see further how this comes when we go and look in, uh, in, in the book of, uh, of Deuteronomy, and you go to chapter 7 of the book of Deuteronomy, and there's more reason why they aren't to marry Canaanites. And the reason there in particular is that God says, if you, if you marry a Canaanite, the Canaanites will lead you to engage in idolatry. And, and, and in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, God goes on and he says, you're to destroy them, not just destroy them, he uses the language, total destruction is what is to belong to these Canaanites. So when God, tells, uh, when, when God tells his people not to marry the Canaanites, it's not a kind of irrational hatred that we think of with prejudice, but there's clearly an opposition on the part of God, an opposition against the evil that's there. Uh, we could take a whole hour to talk about all the terrible kinds of sins that were practiced in Canaanite culture, the kinds of things that they did. So as we look at this text, uh, we find that uh, Jacob arrives in, in Haran. Now, Jacob has been traveling uh, around 450 miles. It's hard to know just exactly how he went, but it's roughly around 450 miles. And if he's a good walker, Jacob has been walking for over a month. I mean, that's all he's been doing. Uh, if he's gotten there in a little over a month, he's just been walking all this time. And... Uh, uh, Jacob uh, arrives, uh, or he's not sure where he arrives, as a matter of fact. The text really starts off by, uh, by Jacob uh, asking, you know, uh, uh, where am I? Uh, kind of, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, he asks these guys where they're from, and they say, oh, we're from Haran, and Jacob says, that's where I'm going, now I know where I am. Uh, so we, we find him coming into this, this place, and uh, uh, when I read this text, one of the first things that pops into my mind, he comes to a well that is right near where Laban lives. Now, the text doesn't give us any reason to think that the well that Jacob comes to is the very same well that Abraham's servant came to uh, when he was looking for a wife uh, for uh, Isaac. This is where he found Rebekah. But it does seem to me that, that even if it's not the same well, uh, there is, as Moses writes this, a very clear contrast. We're going to bounce back and forth between what we see in Genesis chapter 24 and what we see here in Genesis chapter 29. I think the contrast is there, and it will bounce out to us in a, in a little bit. We'll see a difference very clearly in the behavior of, of Abraham's servant. I think it was Eliezer, and, uh, and also Jacob and uh, Rebecca and Rachel be a contrast too. Now we also may wonder when you look at this text, why is there all this about that, that stone that's on the well? What's going on here? You know, that's, that's, that takes up as much space as almost anything else does in the text. And so when we're looking at it, we may raise the question and say, why all about this stone? Well, it strikes me that, <clears throat> that as, as this is recorded, one of the first things is, you think of a stone, where did you most see a stone most recently? Well, it comes back to us. You know, there was the stone that Jacob slept on, but it was also the stone that Jacob raised up, and it became a symbol, a memorial, it's 
something was testified uh, to, uh, to, to the fact that, that God was with him, that God had visited him. It's a reminder to Jacob that he has a special place. God has come to him and God has said, you're going to get all the blessings that I promised to Abraham, all the blessings that I promised to your father Jacob. I mean, this is, this is when he sees that, that big stone there that's over top, of the, over top of the well, certainly I would imagine that he remembers God coming down to him and the angels on the stairway uh, going up and down to heaven. I think that would be a reminder there. I also think there may be something not quite so, uh, uh, so spiritual and honorable as that. Uh, the stone also will give Jacob an opportunity to show that he's a big, strong guy. Uh, because you know the shepherds can't get back out to the, to the uh, uh, pastures, even though Jacob sort of chides them and says, hey, it's the middle of the day, aren't you? Why aren't you out there feeding your flocks on the grass instead of lollygagging around here at this rock, at this well with a big stone on it? And they say to him, we, we can't do anything about it. We have to wait till some other guys come here so that we can move this stone away. Then we all uh, water our sheep, and then we put it back. It gives Jacob a chance to, uh, to demonstrate that to uh, uh, that he's strong, and I, as we will go along, we'll see that, that he does so when, <clears throat> uh, when, when he sees Rachel. Uh, Jacob interacts uh, with these shepherds, uh, and as he's doing that, Rachel arrives, and she arrives with her flock. Now, Rachel was a shepherdess, and I think for many of us, we kind of have our own prejudice that shepherds are men. Well, that's not necessarily the case, uh, that we're fine with uh, women also being, young women especially being uh, shepherdesses. Uh, Rachel could have been quite young. If, uh, if she fits the pattern, she could have been uh, uh, maybe even pre-adolescent. Uh, you have to remember, she waits seven years uh, till she gets married, and so if she was a 20-year-old in that society, she would have been uh, thought of by everybody as an old maid if she was uh, uh, 27 by the time she got married. But anyway... Um, uh, Jacob is, is attracted to, to Rachel. I mean, the text makes very clear, not only here but in other places, that Jacob is attracted. Now, for those of you who are much more romantic inclined to, than I am, uh, you may say, here's a clear example of, you know, love at first sight. And I don't think that's what the text is trying to get at, but I do think that it's not an illegitimate thing for us to think about. Uh, that, 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 that did happen. This attraction uh, comes out in the text again and again, uh, and it's a part of the relationship that uh, Jacob and Rachel will have as they, they go about. I also think, though, as we read the text very carefully, it's not only noted that, that Jacob sees Rachel, but what else does he see? He sees Laban's flock. Remember this about Jacob, because I think that as Moses writes this down, he knows who Jacob is, and he puts these things in there for us to remember what kind of a person Jacob will be. And we'll see that as we go along and see the way in which Jacob and Laban try to cheat one another uh, as with regard to, to the flock. So, so we see this. It tells us something about the character of Jacob. Uh, Jacob then rolls away the stone uh, from the well, and uh, uh, this is where he gets to show that he's a big, strong man. Uh, whether he impressed Rachel or not, the text doesn't tell us, uh, but I don't think it is idle speculation to assume that Jacob did it in order to impress Rachel. I think that's a fair uh, judgment to make. Whether uh, uh, theologians will call it a good and necessary consequence or not, I don't know. But it does seem to be that it jumps out in the text as we look at it. Now, 
I do think we have to take just a little bit of time again to make a contrast with what was going on back in Genesis chapter 24. You'll remember, as I mentioned before, this is where the story about when uh, uh, the, the, the servant of Abraham, Eliezer, comes. And as the story unfolds in chapter 24, one of the things that, that, that just can't help but getting a hold of you is the way in which Eliezer displays a kind of deep-seated piety. And that's emphasized there, if you can recall that text. I mean, he, he prays to God about how he will be able to see this uh, woman. Is she the right one to be the, the, the wife of Isaac? And after he prays and does all these things, it turns out that God guides in that way, and then he gives thanks to God. And as a matter of fact, in chapter 24, that part of the story is repeated twice. So it's there so that we can get some emphasis by it. But if you go back and you look at 24, who comes across as the real pious guy? It's Eliezer, it's the servant of Abraham. You look in this text, who's the pious person? I dare you. <laughs> Who is the pious person? You see, it's just, it's just not a part of what we see. It's not something at this point that clearly characterizes either Jacob or Rachel. It's not something that just jumps out at us. We also, as we, we look at this text, we find things that are, are kind of strange. And whether it's a translation problem or not, I don't know. But the way in which the text unfolds is that in verse 12, the first thing that we see is that Jacob goes up, he kisses Rachel, and then he weeps over. Then in the next verse, he introduces himself to her. Now, the NIV switches it around and says, after he had. Uh, I'm not sure that's a very good translation, but it gets rid of the oddity. Uh, but whatever happens here, and it's, it's, it's a strange kind of uh, uh, unfolding as it comes to us, but whatever happens here, uh, Rachel runs home and she tells her dad, Laban, uh, that his relative has come. And Laban uh, comes uh, rushing uh, here as well. And... Uh, you'll, you'll forgive me if I have suspicions about Laban's character. Uh, if you've read these stories, uh, you know where I get my suspicions. But my wonder is Laban rushes to see Jacob if he remembers why he rushed to the well back in chapter 24. Does anybody remember why? He saw the gold that Eliezer gave to Rebekah. And he thought, aha, and he ran to the well and welcomed the guy. And I wonder if this is some of what's going on. But regardless of, of what happens, uh, uh, he does uh, welcome uh, Jacob into his own home. And, um, uh, and so let's look at, at the way in which the arrangement between Laban and Jacob unfolds. Uh, uh, Jacob begins, uh, the, the text begins by telling us that when Jacob gets together with Laban, that Jacob tells him all these things. And uh, all these things are not really explained very well to us, but, but we can imagine what some of these things are that uh, Laban hears from the uh, uh, words of Jacob. I would suspect that one of the first things he would tell him is, you know, my mom and dad sent me here to find a wife. Uh, and that would make sense to Laban, uh, and he would also know he has two daughters, so it would uh, uh, sort of uh, fit in with him. Uh, I, I suspect that he may have also told uh, Laban about the meeting of God, what happened at Bethel on the stairway and God's uh, uh, coming, and he probably told him about the promises of that, uh, that, that, that the blessing that, Jake, uh, that Isaac gave to Jacob before he left to go to Haran. 
I seriously doubt that he told him that, uh, you know, I turned out to be a cheater and deceived my brother and, and my dad and, and did all these things. I suspect what I know about Jacob's character at this point is he could have forgotten that. Uh, he could have just slipped from his memory at that point. But he does set some things out that, that it, the text seems, uh, tells us that he's, uh, 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 Laban becomes interested, if you will, so uh, Jacob spends a month, the text tells us, uh, and uh, he spends a month there, and it's during that month uh, that Laban comes to see uh, that, that Jacob is going to turn out to be a valuable person. He's, he's, a, he's a relative, he's, he wants him to stay there, and he says, I'll, I'll pay you uh, if you come here. And that's where Jacob comes along, and he makes a suggestion about uh, what his uh, uh, payment uh, might be. Um, and as we look at this text, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is Jacob comes here in an odd way in that culture. Now, you remember when Eliezer came to get a, a bride, when he was looking uh, for a bride for Isaac, he brought camels filled with loot. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way to describe it. He brought all sorts of, of good money. And, and uh, we don't know what kind of money Jacob had, but uh, you know, most commentators tell us that he's probably broke. Uh, and that's why he's willing to enter into this uh, uh, a long-term contract, if you will, with Laban because he doesn't have money for the bride price. Uh, he can't get himself a wife because he doesn't have the money. Uh, not an unheard of situation for uh, young men uh, to, to encounter. But anyway, I think we find this. Um, and, and so we see a difference here and, uh, between what happened in 20, Genesis 24 and what happens here. Um, so Jacob agrees that he will work uh, for uh, this uh, for for Rachel. Uh, we're told uh, then that 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 Laban has two daughters, and these two daughters have two things that distinguish them. Uh, one thing that distinguishes them is that Leah is older than Rachel. We have no idea how much older uh, Ra Leah is than Rachel. Uh, the other thing that we notice about are told about Leah is that she had weak eyes. Uh, Everybody speculates about this. It's, it's just not something that we can really understand. Lots of commentators say uh, uh, Leah had, uh, didn't have the kind of sparkle in her eyes that uh, uh, Rachel did. I just can't imagine that that's the case. Uh, whatever the weak eyes were, it was a part of something that was obvious, and it made Rachel a lot more attractive than it made Leah. And look at the way in which Leah, I mean, Rachel is described. I mean, you know, if I look, think back at my youth, uh, if I would have been looking for a young lady, I'd have said about Rachel, she's a knockout. She's got good looks and good form. I mean, what more do you want? And I think that's there for a contrast, uh, uh, the contrast between Rachel and Leah. Um, I don't want to say that Leah is the ugly duckling sister, but I do think that, that the, the text is trying to give us that contrast uh, between the two of them. Uh, we're told also that Jacob loved Rachel and he agrees to work for these uh, seven years, but note the way in which the bargain is stated. I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now keep this in mind as we go through the rest of the story. My own speculation is that Jacob knew the tradition. Jacob knew the custom of the people of Haran. And so this bargain is clearly set up to short circuit exactly what 
Laban does. So these are two of a kind against one another. It does seem to me that's what we, we find here. Uh, so uh, Jacob uh, uh, serves uh, Laban seven years, and the text tells us they seem to him but a few days because of the love he had, uh, he had for her, for Rachel. And again, I don't think that the point of the passage is for us to get all dewy-eyed about uh, this great love that, that Jacob had for Rachel. But on the other hand, it does seem to me that, that the, the amount of time that, that the text pays to this makes it important that this kind of relationship that they had is something that is significant, and it will be significant in their lives as they go on, this depth of love that Jacob had for Rachel. Now, uh, the seven years sped by, and Jacob wanted to, uh, to claim his bride. And uh, uh, we see this in, in uh, uh, verse 21. It's uh, set up for us there. And uh, I think there are two things that we, we need to notice from this. The first thing I think we need to notice is Jacob has to take the initiative. Now, 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 it should have been that Laban is in charge of this. He makes an agreement. Uh, he's got the daughter. He's, he's, he's the guy in charge. But he de- there's no evidence in the text that he does anything. It's, it's Jacob who says, uh, it's my time. I've served my seven years. I think it's also interesting to uh, uh, look at the text and to see the way in which uh, Jacob addresses uh, Laban at this time, uh, the very language he uses. He uses the language, I've served seven years, I want my wife. He uses that language, I want my wife. And at first we may wonder, why didn't he say my bride, my intended, or something of that? But we have to remember the patterns of of, of ancient Near Eastern society, the way in which an engagement, if you will, was much more than our idea of an engagement. It was a betrothal. They were, they were married in, in every way except the consummation of that marriage. And I think that's important for us to understand as we go along because Jacob is saying, I want my wife. I'm betrothed to her. She belongs to me. That's, that's, that's where we are in this. And um, uh, Laban knew this practice, it seems to me. I mean, Jacob knew this practice uh, about uh, this betrothal as well as he knew about the older and the younger. Now, after Jacob makes his demand uh, and uh, Laban acquiesces to this, uh, then uh, Laban does what he's supposed to do. He has a big party. But it is fascinating to me as I look at this text, there's no sign before or after the party that there's any kind of wedding ceremony. And I think that's significant as we go through the rest of the story. don't, I couldn't find anybody that would tell me exactly what the patterns were of Haran, but it would be very odd that there was no kind of, 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 uh, of ceremony for a wedding. I mean, most cultures have that, but there's nothing here about it. And I think that's important that it's, that it's not something that happens here. Uh, and so they have, have this, this uh, feast. Uh, then uh, Jacob goes, uh, goes into uh, to what he thinks is his wife uh, to consummate the marriage uh, uh, with, uh, with, he thinks, it's, it's with Rachel. And uh, in, in the morning, he discovers that it's Leah. Now, if you're like I am, two things sort of bop into your head immediately right there. One is, boy, that, that Laban's a skunk. I mean, he's just a skunk. I mean, to do this to his daughters, to do this to Jacob, he's a liar, he's a cheat, he's all those bad things, and he is all those things. That, that comes to our mind. But the bigger question that you probably have is, how in the world did this get pulled off? And 
I'm sorry, folks, but I think the only answer is that Jacob was drunk as a skunk. Uh, he was just bombed out of his mind. That's the only thing that I can think of. It's interesting that Bruce Waltke, in commenting on this, this passage, uh, and he talks about this word feast that, that's translated in the ESV, and Waltke tells us of the feast. The Hebrew word implies a drinking fest. And I think that's what's going on. And uh, yeah, Leah was probably veiled. Lots of people talk about that. But what is Leah's outstanding physical characteristic? Her eyes. <laughs> you don't veil your eyes. You have to be able to see. So I do think that there is evidence that, that Jacob was just drunk. And I can only think that Jacob woke up with a what do I call it, a real and a figurative headache. Uh, uh, you know, if he was so drunk that he didn't know who he was sleeping with, surely he was hungover in the morning. I mean, there could be no other uh, explanation. But he's also got this headache. This is not Rachel in bed with him. I mean, that's, that's very clear. Um, and he, he's the one who feels betrayed. Uh, and, and again, we see the irony in this. And look at what we see in, in verse uh, uh, 25. Uh, what have you done to me? Did I serve you? Why have you deceived me? I mean, uh, when Moses wrote that down, <laughs> uh, what do you think came into his head? You know, here's Jacob, the, the, the cardinal deceiver, Complaining to Laban, his, uh, uh, his equal in this business of deception, and saying, you skunk, you deceived me. I mean, you get the irony, the, 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 the ugliness of what's going on in the midst of all of these things. And uh, um, Laban's answer is given to us, you know, I'm just following a, a tradition. It's not done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. But I've already mentioned to you, I think Jacob knew that. That's why I go back to verse 18, that he has agreed to a contract for the younger, and that's, that's Rachel. So, so Laban is, is really manipulating things. And uh, Laban takes advantage of uh, Jacob's exasperation, and I will use the words, he cons him into another seven years, and he gives him... Uh, him Rachel and in doing so Laban again reveals his character we get over to chapter 31 we'll see the way in which both of his daughters judge uh, the kind of person that he is so that's the arrangement and all the strange things that come out of that arrangement but, but I think we also are worthwhile to ask ourselves what's the aftermath what's what's the upshot of all of this and uh, when we look at this there there's more than one person who's blameworthy as we look at the text I think the text points out a lot of people who who have done things that are wrong and I think more than one is blameworthy in in this I think this is uh, uh, Laban shows his true character I mean, if you want a person uh, not to trust or turn your back on, Laban is exhibit A. That's, that's what he is. He's, he's, he's a louse. Uh, uh, no better way to put it. He's manipulative, deceitful, thieving. I mean, all of those kind of things are about him. But I think we can't just let Jacob off either. I mean, if you are so drunk that you can't recognize a woman that you've labored seven years for and the text keeps telling us how deeply in love is, 
you're really drunk, and I think it's worthwhile for us to pay attention to that, to take, take a bit of a warning uh, from, from what happens when someone is, is that drunk. I think we're well to be warned. And I also think that Leah uh, shares a great deal of blame here. Oftentimes we read about Leah, uh, people kind of think of her as an innocent who was also uh, taken advantage of and treated badly, but I, I just don't think so. I make the judgment, Leah is an adulteress. Leah grew up in a society that knew what betrothal was. She knew what that meant. That meant that there was exclusivity, and that exclusivity belonged to Rachel. And so Leah goes to bed with her sister's betrothed, the one that's supposed to belong to him. But, but you don't do that innocently, brothers and sisters. <laughs> This takes deception on her part. I mean, she learned from the master, probably from her dad, but somehow even drunken Jacob didn't notice that this wasn't, wasn't Rachel, and the only way that could have been done is if Leah did some things to make sure that he didn't notice it was the wrong sister that was there in bed with him. So, so, so I think Leah uh, deserves some... Um, uh, uh, some of the blame is also it. She, she's guilty. Uh, even if, even if uh, Laban pre pressured her and all of these things, I think she had to work hard at this deception. And in all of this that's going on, the question I have to ask, and I'll wait at the back of the door for you to answer, where in the world is Rachel? I mean, you know, there's a big party for the wedding. What did they do with her? And the text doesn't tell us a thing about it. It's, it's one of those things that, you know, if you're preparing a sermon on this, you keep looking for someone to give you an answer, and there's nothing about Rachel. Now, she knows why he served seven years. She knows who he's talking about when he says, my wife. There's nothing about it. We, we just don't see anything at all there. And it's, it is in this uh, 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 text one of those things that has really piqued my curiosity, so I'll wait for someone to explain all of this. But we also see that, that, that uh, there are some long-term, longer-term consequences that, that come out of this as well. They come out in Jacob's family, and we'll see them as they go, but right here we begin to see them. Uh, in, uh, in verse 29, we're told that uh, Jacob, he loved Rachel more than Leah. But if you go to the next verse, where God makes his judgment, and he talks about Leah being hated. So this is not just some little, my affections are a little bit stronger for this knockout gal than for the gal who doesn't have the good eyes. It's hatred. That's the way in which God makes his judgment about it. And that's what happens in the midst of all of this uh, deception. So if the immediate results of the deception uh, brought a terrible family situation, what are the long-term results? And uh, what the long-term results are is that we begin to see something about the way in which God works out his plan and the way in which God works out his plan in the midst of a bunch of sinners. Uh, one of them is that this is... Moses' explanation of the origin of the, of the, of the Israelite nation. Uh, what characterizes the Israelite nation? What do you know about it? You know about tribes. 
And you don't only know about tribes, but what else do you know about those tribes? You know that they all have names. And where did they get all those names? These are all the children that came from Jacob. That's, that's the nation of Israel. That's what comes out of these people who are sinners. That's God at work in the midst of them. Uh, each of the sons of Jacob played a role uh, in, in the history of God's people. And it's interesting as we look at this text, if you, if you look, now the Hebrew doesn't have parentheses like we, we do, but the translators, I think, are right. There's two parentheses in this text. One of them tells us about Zopa, and the other one tells us about Billah. And why are they in there? Because they become mothers with Jacob as the father of the other tribes of Israel. So, so, so God is working out in the midst of all of these uh, sinful people uh, what comes to be the tribes of, of, of Israel, what comes to be the, the nation of Israel. And those long-term consequences continue. Uh, we need to remember that, that Yahweh's overarching providence guides all that is going on in this story. And, and you may wonder how it is that, that the chosen people of God could originate in such a mess, in such a total messed up kind of family. I talked to it about before, you know, uh, that, that uh, if you want to describe this family and you want to describe this family in contemporary social science names, they're dysfunctional, you know, they're, they're, they're just clearly dysfunctional. That's the only way in which we can describe these people. And we just, we just wonder, you know, how, does, how do good things come out of such terrible kinds of situations? And, and the way in which those ter- good things come out of those terrible situations is because of the kind of God that's in charge. It's because of the kind of God that Yahweh is. And when we start thinking about this, you might think, well, wouldn't it have been better if they were kind of nice people that God worked his way out? Be careful of that. Be careful of coming to those kind of judgments. Think about your own family. Parents, think. Can God bring good things out of parents who just lose their tempers and fly off at their kids? And kids, can good things come in families where kids look their mother in the eyes and tell them a bald-faced lie? Good things can come out of that, not because of your evil, but because of the kind of God who's in charge in all of these things. Because Yahweh, as he, as he organizes, if you will, his people, his chosen ones, he takes and works through even these sinful people. And, and look at the way in which this works out. Look at the way in which this works out. There's a tribe that's born from a son of Jacob. And from one of those tribes comes the Lord Jesus. You know the tribe, Judah. Think a minute of who his mother is. Not Rachel, Leah. Out of that sinful, adulterous kind of situation, this sovereign, gracious God brings Judah, and from Judah comes Jesus, and Jesus comes to do what? To save sinful people. That's what he comes to do. 
That's the way in which this gracious God works. Let me try to make this, illustrate this just a little bit more clearly in the midst of what we're doing right now. What could be more anomalous? What could be more odd than for me to stand up here and talk to you about Jesus when I know what I'm like? I've used this language before, I'll use it again. Isn't it strange that a damnable sinner like I am stands before you and pleads with you to pay attention to the grace of this God? Were I planning things, I wouldn't have done it that way. And it's not only the anomaly that I'm standing up here, a sinner as I am, trying to communicate to you something about this God, but you're sitting there in the presence of this God, filled with sin. And you're doing so without quaking. You're in his presence. Why? Because he's gracious. We're here on Palm Sunday. Larry explained to us this morning about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. He comes into Jerusalem, welcomed by his disciples, by his followers. But we're going to come back here Friday night. And we're not going to hear necessarily about the triumph of Jesus coming into the city. We're going to hear that on Friday he was hung upon a cross. That's what happened to Jesus. That's what happened to the one who came from the tribe of Judah. That's what happened. Who came from deceiving Jacob and adulterous Leah. And why did he hang on the cross? So that people like Jacob could one day be in heaven. And not only did Jacob get there, your preacher tonight, the only reason, the only reason why I could ever have any hope at all of going to heaven is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross on that Good Friday night. And then on Easter Sunday, God said, it worked, rise up from the grave. And I'm not the only one in this room, brothers and sisters, who depends for my hope in heaven on what Jesus Christ did. Each one of you, if you expect to stand in heaven one day, must stand there on the basis of your faith and trust in that Jesus who died on Good Friday and was raised again on the Sunday. Now I told you, if I were planning how to develop the people of God, I wouldn't have done it this way. I would have never thought this is the best way to do it. But just as I tell you, I wouldn't have done it this way. I do tell you that my hope of eternity is based upon the way in which God did it. And your hope of eternity is based on the way in which the God of grace brought from this family his son, that he might deliver us. I, for one, even though I wouldn't have done it this way, am eternally grateful that God did it his way. I'm grateful for that. How about you?
Are you grateful? God did it this way, that he sent Jesus to come and die for sinners and said, trust me, have faith in me, and you can join me in heaven. How about you? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your grace and mercy is, is just amazing. It stretches our minds so that we can hardly grasp it. But it also quickens our hearts. It warms them to think that you love sinners and you love us so much that you send your own son to be born into the midst of a sinful family and to live amongst a sinful people and to suffer the curse of our sins. And so, great God, Father in heaven, we thank you. And you, O oh Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have loved us and you have loved us so that you gave yourself up for us. And we praise you, O oh sovereign spirit, that you have come and worked in our hardened hearts and opened them to understand the wonderful beauty of your grace and mercy. You're good, O oh God, and we offer to you our praise. And we do so in Jesus' name and we say together, amen.